get your whisk. Is that the beginning of a dirty joke? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I suppose I shouldn't have told you that. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that learned a great deal that we never knew before. Hmm. I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are properly married. We weren't really in the first rank in Cincinnati. That's very true. Yeah. I don't think anyone even knew we were there. (laughs) We weren't ranked at all. No, we weren't. We were not in the society pages. No, we had to like play into the tournament bracket or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, it didn't go well. Do they have society pages in Cincinnati? I don't know. At I mean, at this point, like Kentucky would make sense. <laughs> yeah, they still think it's like the antebellum years. Right, that's true. Uh, yeah, I I really couldn't say. I certainly never saw any society pages. I never but... did either. But we didn't live in Amberley Village or Indian Hill. Well, there you go. Well, that's been a piece of esoteric <laughs> regional politics for everybody. Enjoy. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, uh, welcome back, cousins. We're here to recap Downton Abbey series five, episode three. Yes. Our favorite episode so far. Yeah. A lot of good stuff here. Mm-hmm. Very excited to dive into that. Yeah. But before we do, uh, it's time to announce our cousin of the week. Cousin Stephanie writes, Dear Cousins Kelly and Tom, I discovered your podcast this past summer after binging both seasons of Mr. Selfridge. I don't have any close friends that watch it and was interested to see what other people thought about this show, which I desperately adore. Henri Leclerc, take me away. Anyhow, I was thrilled that you guys recapped Downton, another of my favorite shows. I've been mainlining your episodes ever since. At one point, I almost fell to the ground. I was laughing so hard. You guys have reinvigorated my love of all things Edwardian. After what was for me a very lackluster season four of Downton, I find that looking for Isis in every frame of each episode, hating on Bates, and knowing I have your recaps to look forward to makes me love Downton all the more. I recently discovered that there is a line of Downton Abbey perfume with different scents for various female characters, DowntonAbbeyFragrances.com. However, they are fairly pricey, and I started wondering what other scents might be created for a more affordable line. After all, Mr. Selfridge would totally approve of monetizing all potential price points. (laughs) Here's what I came up with. Irish Despair. (laughs) notes of whiskey motor oil and remnants from the ashes of tom's dreams also the literal ashes and rubble from that irish estate he almost burned to the ground oh to isis for the dog you love more than your human children send of egyptian chamomile to honor isis's namesake the finest grass clippings of all of downton and essence of gold dust because it's isis ain't nothing too good for that bitch vagina of death Made from the remains of dishy Turks and blonde Englishmen killed in deus ex machina car crashes, vagina of death is only for the true femme fatale. Black widows will pale in comparison with your killer charms when you dab vagina of death behind your ears. Warning, this perfume may significantly diminish the male population. <laughs> Cheerful Charlie. A whiff of grease paint, water from the seashore, preferably a portion that has been weighted in by Jim Carter, and an overwhelming air of tradition and respectability. Mixed with bitterness from a decades-old unrequited love, and you too can recall your music hall days of yore. Unfortunate. Modeled on Edith's unfortunate looks, at least in seasons one through three, and her increasingly disastrous luck and love, unfortunate is for the girl who just can't win it. Well, anything. (laughs) Think you found the man of your dreams? A dab of unfortunate and he'll be whisked away by a Nazi. (laughs) 
or leave you standing at the altar or turn out to be impersonating the man you once loved. There is no situation that unfortunate cannot make much, much worse. <laughs> I'd love to hear what Downton fragrances you guys would create. Thank you for all the amazing podcast episodes. Yours and all things Edwardian and cousin Stephanie. P.S. I too am from Cincinnati originally and wish I had known you guys when I lived there. It would have made the place so much cooler. <laughs> uh, well, thank you, cousin Stephanie. Those yeah. are fantastic. Yeah, like those, those are, are really those are like legitimate yeah uh like ad copy <laughs> yeah like i would buy all of those <laughs> yeah more so than the actual perfumes mm-hmm. which look interesting uh but they're 75 dollars a bottle whoa right and i mean i liked looking at the website because they have all of like you know the top notes and the mid notes and the base notes sure you know so i can get back into my prestigious <laughs> crabtree and evelyn uh, knowledge base there. Right. But yeah, just like a lot of stuff. Yeah. And I thought it was a missed opportunity because the Dowagers is called aristocratic, but there's no violet notes in it. Mm. Right? Yeah. It's like an oriental, uh, notes uh-huh, thing with uh-huh. like musk. And like, that's fine, but you know, it could have been violets. Yeah. Just saying. Seems better. Mm-hmm. They're pretty. It's her name. What's not to like? What fragrance would you make? I don't know. I was trying to come up with something real quick here. I'd make one called Murder Prison. <laughs> That's pretty good. It would be, uh, you know, the scent of uh, cigarette smoke <laughs> and uh, the mess hall and just brooding. It could be called shanked. <laughs> shanked by Bates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, cousins, if you have any suggestions, you can uh, let us know. You can tweet or send a carrier pigeon. We're at five Maggie Smiths. That's at five, the number five, Maggie Smith. On Facebook, just search up yours downstairs exclamation point, or you can send us a telegram slash email. We are up yours downstairs at gmail.com. Yeah, and it's always, it's exciting to hear from uh, a newer listener. That's mm-hmm. always great. And we've just, we've been going just over three years now. We passed that this week. Right. Yeah. 100 episodes, three years. Yeah. Wow. And, time uh, flies. Yeah. <laughs> it sure does. And we've got almost all our episodes on iTunes now, but there's some weird problem keeping it at 100 that I haven't figured out yet. Um, and uh, we'll be working to update. Some people have mentioned that it's not updating on Podcatcher and Podkicker and some of the other aggregate sites. So we're right. going to try to figure that out. Yeah. We do both have full-time jobs, so please bear with us. <laughs> yeah, and don't really know what we're doing on that, on yeah, that side of that things also. either. But we've definitely made some progress, and you can always get to it all through baldmove.com. Mm-hmm. It's all on there It's now, all on so. there for sure now. Yeah. So you yeah. can check out back episodes, new episodes, all the episodes you can shake a walking stick in. <laughs> sure. And on that note, <laughs> yeah, let's get into it. Let's. Uh, so we start off with morning in Liverpool, the most romantic city on earth. <laughs> uh, Mary and Gilly are in bed. Mary says that she's happy to be there and that it didn't take her long to get used to being in bed with a man. Bow, chicka, bow, bow. <laughs> Especially a living one. That's yeah. generally her preference. <laughs> well, <laughs> we take what we can get sometimes in life. <laughs> A maid knocks on her door, so Gilly heads into his connecting room before Mary lets the maid in, and then he comes on back. Mary warns him that she can't have any of his breakfast. No, uh, that he can't have any of her or, breakfast. Right. Ex- yeah, that's what I meant. Uh, and he then says that she's worked up quite an appetite, and she does not approve of his vulgar joke. Yeah, didn't he hear what she said about Lady What's-Her-Name's daughter in the last episode? <laughs> he didn't. He uh, wasn't there. Apparently not, no. Uh so Gilly says he will make a note of that and then eats one of her grapes, which she just told him not to do. Uh, Gilly's so basic. Yeah. He is the most basic person and like, hey, boundaries. She said, don't eat my breakfast, Yeah, dude. you've got your own breakfast coming. You told me not to toss your salad. <laughs> Stay away from my breakfast. 
I assume he said that because every guy says that. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure that it came up, but we'll go with that. <laughs> I'm just trying to play into the whole girls zeitgeist right now. No, I understand. <laughs> and I appreciate that. We got to keep relevant. Oh, absolutely. As we discuss Downton Abbey. <laughs> Listen, we're most relevant with people that would hate this podcast. <laughs> True. So, yeah, he just says that he's noting everything about her because he's going to be living with her for the rest of his life and he wants to get used to it. And uh, Somebody sure read an awful lot into this sexual encounter. He did. And he also wants to know, do we really have to go? And she's like, you know, we've been here for a week and nobody's caught us. Let's not push our luck. Uh, and Gilly says that it doesn't matter now because they'll be down the aisle soon. And Mary's like, uh, A, no. <laughs> and B, they're not down the aisle yet. And she's been tarnished once and she won't be tarnished again. And then Gilly's breakfast comes. And so he heads into this room and Mary gives a look. Like, as soon as he is, like, he hasn't even shut the door. Yeah. And I'm like, you might want to wait on that for a second. <laughs> like, he could come back in here. Yeah. But the uh, the Gilly experience uh, is not getting four stars from Lady Mary. No. The Yelp review, uh, <laughs> two stars at best. <laughs> yeah. And I will say, though, I love the duvet cover in this hotel. Oh, well, okay. It's really cute. It's, like, salmon colored. So if you're looking for a premarital affair... Uh, the Grand Hotel in Liverpool, yeah. if that is a place that still exists. <laughs> Back at Downton, in the kitchen, Daisy's feeling very confident about her schooling, and she wishes she'd stayed in school longer. Uh, then she sees Mrs. Patmore crying over letters she's reading, but Mrs. Patmore says it's nothing. So, probably we're never going to talk about that again. <laughs> right. That would be my guess. That seems fair. I agree. Yeah, Daisy's super psyched about her maths. Oh though. man, she loves her maths. Yeah. She loves her maths more than I love anything. <laughs> yeah. This is about as happy as she's ever been. Yeah. And she has a farm. Yeah. Upstairs at breakfast, McGee says that Bricker would like to show them the Della Francesca's in the uh the National Museum when whenever they're next in London. And I'm like, Oh, show her the Della Francesca's eh? I bet he wants to. Is that what he calls his balls? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oh, art scholars. (laughs) Lord Grantham says that McGee should go because he would like to know if their Della Francesca is any good. I hate him. (laughs) He is so, like, what do you mean you want to know if it's any good? It's a Della Francesca. You just had an art expert in your house. You could have asked him then. Yeah. Like, does he mean in comparison with other Della Francescas? Do you mean in the pantheon of art up to the (laughs) present day? Like, what are you trying to say? He wants to know uh, when next he loses their fortune, how much can they get for it? That's probably true. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Edith asks why McGee is at breakfast, which I had wondered myself. Mm -hmm. Uh, But she apparently has a meeting to organize the church flowers rota that has gotten messed up. So, uh, yeah. What's a rota? Uh, it's a, a roster uh, list, like a carpool oh, situation. Oh, okay. So different, like, members of the parish. Are supposed Do they call them parishes? Yes. Yeah. So they have to, like, bring the flowers. Right. And apparently somebody, you know, called in sick, and then somebody else said, well, it's not my week, and mm-hmm. then one thing led to another, and now... There's the, no flowers. Yeah. The Countess of Grantham has to get involved. And the statue of Jesus is crying. <laughs> 
Branson says that he has gotten an intriguing offer from a gentleman in Leeds. That which, sounds a bit <laughs> yeah. uh, saucy. Is that the beginning of a dirty joke? <laughs> <laughs> well, Mary doesn't want to hear it. <laughs> no, she does She's not. She's not interested in such vulgarity. Well, despite that, Lord Grantham says to wait until Mary gets back. <laughs> I hear she's worked up an appetite for vulgar jokes. <laughs> if I know my children, and I don't... <laughs> Edith is planning to stroll down to Pig Farm. Surprise, surprise. Uh, Branson offers her a ride. And Edith also says that Rose is not there because she got an early train to York because she wanted to spend all day with her Russians. Uh, she, she apparently loves this. No, for some I don't like, I, again, just comparing and contrasting the Rose that we met. <laughs> yeah. Who was a flapper who was banging a married dude. <laughs> yeah. Who now is this like prim, demure county lass who just yeah. wants to spend all day with a bunch of russian refugees who are all at least 40 years old <laughs> right just like i like it because i can take care of people but not see any poor people <laughs> mcgee thinks it's nice to see so there you go uh it's really more than either of her other two daughters are doing. <laughs> well that's fair edith just goes and hangs out with pigs all day <laughs> <laughs> right so Edith and Branson head out, and McGee says to Lord Grantham that Edith is sure getting fond of that little girl, and Lord Grantham hopes that Edith isn't driving the mother mad. So, uh-oh. Whoopsies! Yeah. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> she started doing that in the first episode this season. <laughs> Thomas goes into the Carson cave and asks to make a phone call, and then he asks Mr. Carson if he can make the phone call alone and carson is really like crabby like, well, don't make a habit of it he's like oh i'm just calling this 900 number like, no big. <laughs> well it's like look dude you have the only telephone and you know it's not before the war these it's people have lives apparently also in the 20s the 900 number was just 900 <laughs> <laughs> hello you've reached 900 for all your filthy sexual needs chaps seeking chaps <laughs> So Thomas calls somebody and he says he read an ad in the London Times for a company called Choose Your Own Path. Yes. Uh, which sounds like the Promise Keepers? <laughs> it's uh, early GPS. I don't know. It's very hard to say. Yeah. So Mary and Gilly are walking out of the Liverpool Hotel of Premarital Scandal. And Gilly says that they'll just need to get everything organized now. And she's like, eh, yes. And oh, sure. Yeah. So they smooch and she gets into a car. Cut to Sprat! Sprat! Dun dun dun! What is Sprat doing in Liverpool? I'm uh, making that face he makes. <laughs> it's a Sprat attack! <laughs> so, back at the Dower house, Isabel is sitting with the Dowager who asks after her aging Romeo. <laughs> And Isabel says that she hasn't heard anything since their gallivant in the gardens. <laughs> and she claims that she is not disappointed by this, but she seems a little bummed. She does. You know. She asks why Spratt wasn't there to open the door. And the dowager says Spratt's in Liverpool to walk his niece down the aisle at her wedding. Yeah. Isabel says it's unlikely for him to have a private life, which is a weird thing for Isabel to say. It is. Champion of the downtrodden Isabel Crawley. Right, who didn't even want to have a servant. I guess maybe she's like trying on being, you know, a big muckety muck in the county. Oh, uh, yeah. And trying to get her overbite on. <laughs> yeah. Uh and then the dowager adds that it's inconvenient when uh, not on their days off. Right. Isabel says servants are humans. 
Oh, okay. and that's when the Dowager says, preferably only on their day off. She laughs at her own joke <laughs> and then rings a bell for Spratt's understudy or whatever. Uh, yeah, whoever's... Or I guess Mrs. Mrs. What's-Her-Name. I, I assume there's a good reason for it, but I just imagine that anytime Spratt's gone, she just keeps ringing that bell and nothing happens. <laughs> <laughs> Tinkerbell just, like, lives or something. <laughs> no. No, an angel gets its wings. Right. There you go. Uh, so the Dowager Countess giving angels their wings <laughs> since 1874. Um, Dunker. Danker? Is oh, her, yeah. Is her cook slash yeah, maid or I whatever guess it she is. is. Yeah. She's the maid. Right. Does she even have a cook anymore? I don't know, man. Man, Dowager, get your shit together. <laughs> we want to know what the deal is with your staff. Yeah. Fill us in. Uh, in the Carson cave, Officer Bummer is there. The <gasps> policeman uh, says that there's a witness who is a young woman who swears she heard Green say, quote, why have you come just before he died, but did not see who he was talking to. Well, what a useful witness. Yeah. You're super useful. Maybe you should have just kept your witness mouth shut. Agreed. Yeah, like in the movie Witness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go raise a barn. Yeah, and Green told Gilly's other servants that he had been in a quarrel at Downton, which Carson is very surprised to hear. He says that Green was in high spirits. Too high, if you ask me. Oh, you. <laughs> in the library, everyone's taking tea, and McGee tells Mary that Isabel was asking about her travels. Edith snarkily asks where Mary's sketches are. Mary rolls her eyes, like, that was obviously a lie. Right. Everyone else is fine with it. Why can't you get the program? <laughs> Branson then announces that this Leeds guy wants to build 50 houses on Pip's Corner. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, which was all donated by an ex-con. <laughs> Branson says it's a good offer, but Lord Grantham says he won't have 50 ugly houses on his field. I'm like, you don't know that they're ugly. You haven't seen any blueprints or anything. He he can tell. The kids come in, uh, and exciting news. George is in a sweater vest with a V-tie <laughs> and not yes. a sailor suit for it's a change. True. But Sibby is adorable. She is. That child actress is the best. Yeah. Well, because, like, I don't know if she thinks that Hugh Bonneville is her actual, uh, <laughs> what does she call him, donk? Yeah. But, like, every time she sees him, she just loses her shit. Yeah. And she's got an adorable little teddy bear. Yes, she does. It's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and Edith is sad, we say, redundantly. <laughs> right. She's like, oh, my child only gets that excited about pigs. <laughs> and I can't tell anyone that she's my child. <laughs> They're not even my pigs. <laughs> Poor Edith. Yeah. Carson tells Hughes about Officer Bummer's visit. She says she doesn't remember anything. Even though she obviously does. Right. Dramatic irony. <laughs> In the hall, uh, Mosley tells Carson that there's a call for Mr. Barrow, and Carson is like, well, why don't you tell him now that you're first footman? What is going on with this? <laughs> like, is he going through the change? <laughs> God, man, like, come on, you have a, like, nice life. Yeah, he just, he cannot stand Molesley and never could for, I mean, look, like, Molesley's got his issues, but, like, you gotta, well, you know what, we don't live with Molesley 24-7. That's true. Actually, Molesley reminds me of, I think his name was Dr. Romano on ER. Okay. Who was played by Paul McCrane, who plays a really adorable character in the movie Fame. Okay. Uh, starring Irene Cara. <laughs> I'll spare you the soundtrack. <laughs> well, we'll see about that. Uh, <laughs> you know, Tom, sometimes I wonder where I've been, who I am. Do I fit in? You tell me. Anyway, so, but like Dr. Romano was one of the ER doctors and 
everyone hated him. Yeah. And I was like, how did this guy even get hired? <laughs> how have they not fired him by now? Because he He's was a just damn good doctor. He may have been. I don't, I don't know. remember. I, never saw I that think show. he did sleep with somebody for a while, and I was like, why are you sleeping with that dude? I don't understand. Yeah. Like literally nobody likes that guy. <laughs> like I think Alex Kingston was sleeping with him when she was on River Song. Ah, for those of okay. you who don't watch ER reruns. <laughs> Yeah, I never watched it. Even when I lived with people who watched it oh, every man. week. I, I watched it every week. Yeah. I would come home from rehearsal for plays in high school. And like for some reason, my mom like always would make chicken, like oven-baked fried chicken <laughs> on Thursday nights. And I would come home and I would eat that. I would watch ER and I felt very adult. Well, that's good. Mm-hmm. Anyway, what were we talking about? Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, Officer uh, Bummer. <laughs> right. Carson's a dick. Yeah. Uh, but then uh, Patmore asks to talk to Hughes. So Carson is left, and she tells Hughes that she's had a letter from Archie's mother, who we are reminded is her nephew, or Archie is her nephew that was shot for cowardice in World War One. Exposition! Exclamation point. Yes. I sometimes think the show would be better off if they did, like, previously ons and just left it at that, you know? You know what? I think it might because, it, like, the rest of the writing is generally pretty good. So when they wedge an exposition like this, right. it sticks out like a sore thumb. It does. But in any case, no, not a huge deal. Uh, but she says that the memorial in uh, Farsley, the town near Leeds where they live, uh, is going up and will not have Archie's name on it. Hughes, Hughes is like, okay, I wish I could help. And she says that... If they put Archie's name on their memorial, then in Farsley they could say, oh, that's why it's not on here. They put it up in Grantham Village or whatever because of the family connection there. And so there's nothing to see here because apparently it's still a big secret in Farsley. Uh, Which is pretty impressive on the part of his family because presumably it's a matter of public record and somebody would have found out by now. Yeah. Uh, Slash possibly people who were in his regiment. Yeah, because I thought they generally like signed up in, you know, local groups. But, you know. I don't know. Hey, they, you know, whatever. That's what's driving this particular storyline. So Patmore says she wants Hughes to talk to Carson about it because she can twist him around her finger. Hughes denies having this ability. Uh, and then Daisy comes in and says they're starting the Hollandaise. Mm-hmm. So, you know. Get your whisk. <laughs> Back at the Dower House, the Dowager hopes that Spratt isn't tired from his trip. Right. And he says he isn't. Uh, and then makes very clear he's got a big secret. Right. Uh, I hope Spratt never plays poker. <laughs> because he's going to be taken for all he's worth. Yeah, it's true. So the Dowager wants to know what the deal is. He says it may not be quite right for him to say. And they go back and forth. And the Dowager's like, dude, spit it out or STFU. Yeah. Because I want my brand. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and Spratt says, finally, that he saw Lady Mary with Lord Gillingham coming out of the Liverpool Grand Hotel. And he's very like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> Uh, the Dowager Countess, you know, ad-libs and tab dances her way through saying, oh, yes, they were attending a conference of northern landowners, uh, which isn't bad under the circumstances. Like, I mean, you know, yeah. she does a pretty good job. Right. So she's like, now she wants to drink her brandy in peace and he leaves. But her face. Yeah. Well, her she- face proves why Maggie Smith is in a category all of her own. Yeah. Because it's very like. You know, she's she's kept her poker. She would be great at poker. Yes. Incidentally, both yeah. Maggie Smith and the Dowager. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, she's uh, very concerned about this mm-hmm. because her granddaughter, 
needs to get married again at some point. Right. And, and this is not a great way yeah, to she, ensure her chances. She can't slut it up all over England. <laughs> I mean, Italy's one thing. Oh, right. Exactly. You can slut it up in Italy all the ding-dong day. I know. Isn't that what Eat, Pray, Love is about? I think so. <laughs> in Hughes' room, she tells Anna about the whole Officer Bummer situation, and Anna says that they'll say that he could have been in London. Well, but, Bates. Right. That Bates, not Officer Bummer. <laughs> who probably was. Yeah. Um, Hughes says that even if he was in London, that doesn't mean he did it, but then claims not to have any reason to think that he was there. Honestly, at this point, I feel like I need a flow chart to remember <laughs> who knows what about this situation. And right. we discuss it. Like, Baxter knows something. Right. Mrs. Hughes and Mary, I think, know the, the most. Yeah, because they found that ticket. Well, and Bates, you know, coerced Mrs. Hughes into telling him some stuff. And then, remember, because, like, he was like, oh, Mrs. Hughes, like, I heard you talking and, like, tell me what you know. Right, and we're all yeah. like, why are you so scary? Yeah. Remember you, when Mrs. Hughes helped you with your stupid leg brace? Like, show <laughs> some respect. Yeah. I wonder who found that. <laughs> you know, just like one day, Mr. Bates' weird leg brace washed up on pig farm. <laughs> and they were like, hooray! <laughs> Finally, something to build a, a water bottle for the pigs. It's a pig brace. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Anna's worried that the police will find out somehow what they will find out. I so, just... Mm, yeah. Quit talking about it and it'll go away, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Upstairs, the family walks into the drawing room after dinner, presumably. Right. They're all in evening dress. Yeah. McGee has a fitting in London with Monsieur Molyneux. Right. And he's over from Paris. Although, according to Wikipedia, his name was actually pronounced Molinux. But that's a very British thing. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'm just saying, uh, you know, screw you, Alistair Bruce. You missed that one. I don't know, honestly. There's part of me that feels like McGee being American would, like, deliberately use the French pronunciation. Well. Because I feel like, you know, a lot of people in Britain at the time knew French, mm -hmm. but they would deliberately, like, anglicize right. things that they wanted to approach. Right. That's certainly a thing they would do. But I just feel like, you know, if she knows on good enough terms with him to, like, get a fitting during his one-time trip, or, mm -hmm. you know, rare trip to London, that she would know better. Maybe but, they're so close that she's allowed to call him Molyneux. Oh, yeah, that's true. I don't know. Well. At any rate... I just uh, wanted to blame Alistair Bruce for something. Look, we can blame Alistair <laughs> Bruce for a lot of stuff, Tom. I'm sure there will be no shortage of opportunity. Fine. Mary has a telephone call from the Dowager Countess, which is interesting because I don't believe we have up until this point learned that she has a telephone. Possibly. We might have. I think, I'm trying to remember, because remember when she was sick? I'm yes, trying to remember. but she didn't telephone because okay. that was a situation where I think uh, McGee and Mary or possibly Edith went there and like saw how sick she was. Yeah. I don't remember. I don't remember either. Still, good to know. So Mary goes in to take the call. McGee asks Lord Grantham to come up to London with her. And he says he has a dreary meeting, so he can't go. Right. And he's just really being a Debbie Downer. He is. The next day, Edith's planning to watch Marigold while Mrs. Pigman takes the littlest piglet to the dentist in Thirsk. Right. Like, is that really where your closest dentist is? That could be. That's Rose, the only one on their, you know, coverage. Yeah. Their, <laughs> their pigsurance. <laughs> That's right. Rose is taking her Russians to see where the Brontes live, and Isabel gets all excited, saying that hopeless lovers wandering over a desolate moor is very Russian. I'd also like to say that's only one of the Brontes. I also would like I'm to like, say Isabel, that. I'm like, Isabel, quit being like 
so basic <laughs> right just like like trying to be like oh i know all about the brontes you just i know- only read wuthering heights because it's the shortest one right uh, but she says it's all very russian and like it kind of is kind of yeah uh rose wants to bring the russians to downton to compare the jacobian Jac- which I think she pronounced it Jacobian, okay. which may be a way that things were done. I don't okay. know. That all makes sense. Jacobian way. Yeah. Of doing things with a newfangled Downton Abbey. <laughs> right. Like, whoa. Uh, yeah. We've got a radio. Like, that's <laughs> basically it. <laughs> McGee is worried that the Russians will be unhappy uh, when they sort of see all this stuff. And nice Rose things. says they, they like to be nostalgic. So Lord Grantham actually says they have some Russian things from a trip his mother and father took to Russia in 1874. And then Mary comes in. She doesn't seem super put out, but she seemed a little weird. Right. She said that uh, the dowager asked her to stop by the next day and look in. Right. So it may be... You know, maybe just she caught the tone of voice in that request mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah. But we're presuming it's about Mary's uh, oh. vagina of death <laughs> making a resurgence. <laughs> making a, a, a tour to Liverpool. <laughs> well, now it is time for the first of our two recurring segments, Tom Repeats History, with our resident royal raconteur, Tom. Welcome, Tom. <laughs> Thank you. Applause. Um, yeah, we really ought to start having a small audience for this. <laughs> that would be fun. Yeah, we'll see what we can do. Yeah, that sounds really hard. Moving on. Yeah, and we'd have to like keep our house clean all the time. Ugh. Yeah, right? Forget it. Yeah. <laughs> Not nothing doing, cousins. <laughs> Look, we didn't get into the podcast game <laughs> to clean our house more often. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Anybody who tells you that's why they got into podcasts is lying. And they don't have a podcast. Right. <laughs> So yeah, uh, the wedding in question that was just mentioned, they describe it in more detail later. It was uh, the Grand Duchess Maria Alexandrovna of Russia to uh, Prince Alfred, Duke of Edinburgh. And Prince Alfred was the second son of Victoria after Edward became Edward VII and named an heir. Um, So I just looked into it a little bit just because I thought it was nice to look into some history that was not in the 20s. and I just I just found it interesting the tangled and stupid life of the royals in <laughs> the late nineteenth century. So Maria was born in eighteen fifty three and then in eighteen seventy one in Denmark was introduced to Alfred, uh, and she was introduced by her sister in law, who was Maria Feodorovna, formerly Dagmar of Denmark. Oh Jesus. Yeah. Dagmar. Yeah. She's only in like the kind of petty Danish nobility, but made it sounds it... like something out of Beowulf. <laughs> right. It does. And yet she managed to get into the Russian, uh, uh, royal family and change her name to Maria Feodorovna. Which, which is much better. Yeah. I bet she was relieved. I bet she was too. <laughs> uh, and they were all introduced by his sister-in-law, Alexandra of Denmark, aka princess, later queen Alex, uh, Edward's wife. So uh, they married in 1874, as discussed, in St. Petersburg, but the marriage really did not go well. Uh, a lot of their life was spent fighting over precedence between her and the Princess of Wales because she and her father felt strongly that she should have the higher precedence because she was the daughter of an emperor while the Princess of Wales was the daughter of a king of Denmark. This is the whitest white person problem I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. And Victoria was like, yeah, well, the Princess of Wales is the Princess of Wales, so fuck off. Yeah. Um, or, you know, we're not amused or whatever she would <laughs> say. Uh, so, yeah, she never got along with Victoria, and she would always try to upstage Victoria by wearing nicer jewels than Victoria was at whatever event they might be at. 
I feel like this should be like a weird like buddy comedy somehow, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Or like, you know, uh Bride Bride Wars, but like in the Victorian era. <laughs> Vicky and Mary. Oh god, let's write this right now. <laughs> Yes, she also found the English court dull, the English weather depressing, and she thought that Parliament was dangerous and radical. Like, she just really, she was like, why do you have a Parliament? Like, you've got a Queen. What's this Parliament doing? (laughs) It's all a smokescreen. In 1880, uh, she went to see her dying mother and found that her father had moved his mistress into the palace in the rooms above his dying wife. And she got pretty upset. That's a bit much. It is a bit much. And everyone else in the Sars family had already gotten pissed off at him for the way he was behaving. And she had been the only, like, one willing to still turn a blind eye. But now she also got mad. Yeah. And so he, well, first he just, like, fled town to go to some military review to not have to face her. But then he did agree to... Did he leave his mistress there, or did she go with him? Uh, not not specified. God, what an awkward breakfast. <laughs> yeah, well, but don't worry. He did decide to change his ways, by which I mean he agreed to visit his dying wife once each morning to inquire after her health, uh, but otherwise didn't do much different. Oh my God. Yeah. What a monster. <laughs> yeah. Well, good news. He was assassinated the next year. <laughs> So, well, hey, yeah. sometimes karma works. <laughs> yeah. Well, czars get assassinated a lot. That is also true. Throughout history. Uh, so in 1893, Alfred's uncle, who was the Duke of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha, or Gotha, probably Gotha. Could it be Goethe? <laughs> no. Okay. It would be spelled different. Fine. It would have an umlaut. <laughs> you never let me say Goethe. <laughs> you can say it all the time. Goethe, Goethe, Goethe. <laughs> It's like the Brady Bunch in Germany. <laughs> Goethe, Goethe, Goethe! <laughs> Be quiet, Jan! <laughs> Schnell. Uh, the, <laughs> so uh, Alfred became the Duke of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha, or Gotha because Edward had renounced that because he was going to be king of England. That would just be too much. Well, look, it's really important to just scale back. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. So Alfred wasn't thrilled about having to move to Germany, but Maria was delighted uh, because she'd always hated England. And plus, <laughs> this now meant that she outranked her sisters-in-law because she was the wife of a sovereign duke. It's like it's all very weird because like it was the German Empire and he wasn't the emperor, but like the duchy was sovereign, except it sort of wasn't. I mean, this was, you know, the German aristocracy from about 1700 up to the formation like of Germany as a country blows my mind. Yeah. Well, I mean, it really dates back farther than that. Right. I, mean, I know because of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but like, ugh. yeah, just, all just kinds like of stuff. so much to keep track of. Yeah, there is. Uh, so then at last a little segment about uh, the names of people involved. Uh, so Alfred Ernest Albert, Duke of Edinburgh, KG, KT, KP, GCB, GCSI, GCMG, GCIE, GCVO, PC. Those are his titles. But he was known to his family as Affy because that's how he pronounced his name when he was like three. And so that's what they called him his whole life. Uh, he and Maria had five children. Alfred, who was known as Young Affy. Oh, my God. Marie, who was called Missy. That's all right. Victoria Malaita, who was called Ducky. Alexandra, who was called Sandy. And Beatrice, who was called Baby B. What a horrific family. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Marie became queen of Romania. Ducky married a German grand duke, divorced him, and then married a Russian grand duke. Uh, Sandra married the prince of Hohenlohe-Langenberg. <laughs> <laughs> Where the hell is that? 
that? I presume in Germany somewhere. Oh my god. Yeah. And Baby B married the Infante of Spain. Oh, uh, I always like an Infante. Yeah. Uh, she was. She looked good too. Of all the like stock photographs in mm-hmm. Wikipedia, she was the only one that doesn't have that horrifyingly ugly royalty look to yeah. her. So understandable. Yeah. I think actually that's what's going on with Baby Sibby as well. Because hmm. I feel like George, not that attractive. Nah. Marigold. <laughs> but like Sibby like has that working class blood and yeah. uh, she's adorbs. Yeah, she is. She's also got a very fetching haircut. <laughs> it's true. Uh, so Marie died in 1920 and Marie was not allowed to attend her funeral because Germany and Romania had opposed each other in World War One. Oh, man. And she'd moved to Switzerland, actually, when war broke out because she was Russian and Russians were not super popular in uh-huh. Germany during World War One. I. I think they're probably still not super popular there <laughs> in the current day. <laughs> no, I think you're right. But yeah, so I mean, you know, like every other royal family, their family was on all sides, you know, uh, the central powers, the allies, neutral. They had ro- they had uh, family everywhere. Mm-hmm. And World War One was weird. Really? You don't say? Yeah. We haven't talked about it at all. No. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Tom. That was quite enlightening. <laughs> Back at Downton, uh, it's servants' dinner in the servants' hall. Carson says that uh, he hopes Thomas's phone calls aren't a sign of bad news. But Thomas actually says that his father is ill. Uh, Carson then kind of softens and is like, oh, well, you need time off. And Thomas says, yeah, he'll need to leave in the morning. And if Carson wants Thomas to see his father alive. Yeah. And then Carson's like, (laughs) so Baxter says that she's sorry because they're seated next to each other at dinner for some reason. Sure. Uh, She's known his family for a long time. And she says his father was always very kind to her. Uh, Thomas shoots back that his father was never very kind to him. Yeah. uh, Probably on account of being a poofter. Yeah. I would imagine why. Yeah, but it's actually, it's a really nice scene between them, and yeah. I find my hatred of Baxter waning, hmm. which is very disturbing to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, she's always been a pretty solid performer. I've, I've been in if- the hating Baxter business so long, <laughs> now that it's over, I don't know what to do with my life. Yeah. Well, it's just, anytime she's doing anything other than looking, like, stricken, mm-hmm. you know, it's a welcome change of pace. Yeah. At any rate, Bates says to Anna that she's quiet and they should take a trip. Anna asks if he ever wonders what it would be like to go to a new place and start again. And Bates, understandably, (laughs) asks why she would say that. And she says she's being stupid. Right. And I'm like, Anna, I feel like you're torpedoing your relationship here. Right. Which, on the one hand, like, good for you. But on (laughs) the other hand... Like, Bates seems pretty chilled out in this episode. Yeah. And I'm like, why don't you back off, dude? Yeah. Dude being Anna. <laughs> right. Uh, Obviously. Daisy, Daisy comes in to clear the plates, and Mrs. Hughes says she hears her maths are going well. And Daisy wonders if she should uh, stop there or continue studying. Patmore comes in and says, come and carry the spotted dick. It's the most hilarious thing anybody's ever said. <laughs> and then Patmore, Carson, and Hughes all look at each other. Right. About this, because this Daisy studying math or not studying math, very important to all three of them for reasons. Why can't they just let her, like, keep doing it till she's tired of it like yeah. a normal human being? <laughs> right. And she's so happy. Right? She's never been this happy. You know, nobody tells Anna and Bates to stop having their hobby of being miserable. <laughs> and killing people. <laughs> In McGee's room, Baxter is undressing McGee and asks her if she's going to be staying or going. And McGee's- Should she stay or should she go? 
Right. Uh, McGee says that she will make a decision tomorrow if Baxter will tell her the rest of the story. Well, there's nothing I hiding. love more than hearing about Baxter's dumb backstory, <laughs> so I'm excited. Great. Uh, Lord Grantham comes in. I love his entrance because, like, <laughs> McGee and Baxter are, like, hella serious. And Lord Grantham just waltzes in, like, doo 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 I don't know anything that happens ever. Well, nothing interesting can be happening in here. <laughs> Not with all these women and my boring ass wife. <laughs> He asks Michie if she is ready for her trip to London. She says she's looking forward to it. Lord Grantham finds that strange. Uh, he doesn't seem to think she's sentient. Well, McGee, kind of out of nowhere, asks if Lord Grantham... Do you ever think of the war? Right. Oh, you mean that thing that raged for years and years <laughs> and killed almost everyone we know? Nah. <laughs> What's a war? You mean... You it mean, rings a bell. You mean me, who's uh, the sponsor of this war memorial they're putting up? <laughs> nah. Try not to. You mean the Boer War, right? <laughs> I was there, you know. Bates was my Batman. We were the best of friends. <laughs> yeah. Which we're not anymore for no, some reason. No. Well, he got boring. <laughs> and he stopped having a limp. What's the most interesting <laughs> thing about him? He used to fall over all the time. Oh, we would all man. get a good laugh out of it. <laughs> Those were the days. <laughs> ah, series one. We hardly knew you. <laughs> or series two, for that matter, which is what McGee is reminiscing about. Yes. Uh, when the girls were working with the officers and she was running everything with Barrow. And the way she says that, like, it's just like, man. Elizabeth McGovern is killing it this season. Yeah. Which I think we've already said. We but, have. Like, she's but, I mean, killing it. Yeah. Like, just she's so good. Yeah. And I mean, this episode in particular... Yeah. I mean, we haven't even gotten to the best parts yet. I know. It's a real showcase for her. Yeah. Uh, so McGee says that she misses being busy and useful. Lord Grantham is like, I don't remember Mary doing much. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is an excellent point. It is a really excellent point. <laughs> uh, but Lord Grantham says she can't want those times back. And McGee says that, well, she wouldn't admit it outside the room. And I love that. I, this scene is great because there are these, like, when you're in a marriage, there's these confidences that you share. Right. That other people would find horrifying. Right. Because that, that really is a terrible thing to say. But it's to want not, little, I mean, one just, back. you know, but, think about something. And I mean, it, well, you know, she just wants something to do. Right. And, you know, there she does not have a worldview that allows for her to have anything to do. Yeah. You know, she can't think of any other reason that she'd ever have anything more important to do than organize the church flower rota. Right. Which, like, sure, tensions got high, but it didn't take her that long, clearly. No. That would have been a fun scene. That would have been a fun scene. <laughs> uh, she asks what the deal is with this Pip's Corner thing, and Lord Grantham says that it's nothing to trouble her with, and she sighs. No! It's like she's just been like, come on, dude. Context clues. She's yeah. just been asking you for something to do. Yeah. It's just, ah, uh, yeah. it's so sad. It is so sad. So in her room, right. Mary is going through some sketches, and they're all of dresses. So it's unclear if these are like sketches from Monsieur Molyneux that she's looking through. Right. Or if these are her purported sketches <laughs> right. that she made in Yeah, Liverpool. we drove through the countryside and stopped whenever we saw a beautiful woman walking along <laughs> by herself through the countryside. So it's very unclear yeah. what those are about. Uh, but Anna asks if she had fun. Mary says, Mary has no answer to uh, that. Ah, okay. So yeah, she's sorry. being very vague. And uh, if she and Gilly have set a date. They have not. And Anna asks if Gilly is trying to get out of it as if he would. Yeah. He's all about it. Yeah. He's all about that base. About he's, that base. 
He's trying to get into it. Yeah. Mary says that she's not in a hurry. And then uh, Mary, in a completely dick move, yeah. asks Anna to hide the thing, a.k.a. the diagram, in her tiny cottage. Yeah. Lest Edith or somebody see it. And I'm like, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> right. Oh, Anna. <laughs> Can you hide this in your tiny cottage where only two people live and you have very few rooms when I live in a mansion? Yeah. And I could easily hide this behind the Gutenberg Bible. Like, yeah. It's just absurd. Yeah. And like, There's... nobody goes in your room, Mary. <laughs> yeah. Nobody goes in your room. Yeah. Except Gilly and he knows all about it. Yeah. As long as you don't actually accidentally burn the place down, you'll be yeah. fine. Anyway, I think it's such a jerk thing to do. It is. But, you know. She asked her to hide not only the diaphragm, but mrs stokes's book yeah and i'm like you already had that in your room that was yeah you're yeah and also had you shared that with edith she wouldn't be in her predicament (laughs) potentially Uh, potentially anyway anna says that she feels that she's aiding and abetting a sin and mary rather than being like oh you know what i am being horrible just changes (laughs) the subject and asks about officer bummer to add salt to anna's open wounds (laughs) yeah well i mean you know it was just last episode that Anna was like, no, wait a minute, maybe these diaphragms are a good idea. But now she's like, oh, I'm aiding and abetting a sin. But, uh, you know. Well, Anna wouldn't, she didn't go that far, you but, know? Yeah, you're, no, you're point, right. Her point was not that she was doing it for a good reason, but she was angry because this woman didn't know the reason she was asking for it. Yeah, okay. And she was saying, if you had, you know, it's those people who were like, you know, the swing voters, basically, yeah. on reproductive rights. Yeah. They're like, well... If you had a good reason, I suppose I wouldn't want God to strike you down. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I I mean, no. And it goes along with, again, what Lucy Lethbridge said when we talked to her. Mm -hmm. Anna's significantly more conservative in her sexual mores than almost everyone upstairs. Yeah, that's true. And it's interesting to see that part of it coming out, you know? Yeah. So downstairs, Anna goes to put the thing in her coat pocket, and then Bates, like, looms up behind her. (laughs) And it's like, what are you doing? Uh, And Anna just basically won't tell him, and it's like some private thing of Lady Mary's. Yeah. It's actually all right, but just the first... Well, and Bates does ask, then, why do you have it? Well, yeah. Which is, like, solid. Yeah. Back in the Carson cave, uh, Carson is not amused at the idea of putting Archie's name on their memorial. And Mrs. Hughes says that they know more about shell shock now and they should be more sympathetic. But Carson says he's sorry for Archie, but asks if it's fair to those who stayed in their posts uh, to be putting him on the war memorial. I'm thinking, too, about, you know, we've been talking a lot about how anachronistically progressive everybody on this series is but here's what i think Mm -hmm. i mean i think even now there are plenty of people who are really progressive about like a certain thing yeah compared to their peer you know their peer or their coworker group and you know they may or may not be vocal about it Mm -hmm. but you know i think they're there because otherwise how do we get from point a to point b Mm -hmm. and i think what's particularly anachronistic here in the show is just that they all happen to live and work together on this one estate. (laughs) No, because there might be one person who's like, hey, these gay chappies are quite all right. (laughs) Yeah. Or there might be one person who's like, oh no, like there's a severe mental illness problem due to the the Mm -hmm. horrors of war. And that, I was thinking about that too because I was talking about Little Town on the Prairie Uh for a different podcast, which we'll link to. Yeah. Um, And Rose Wilder Lane, who was Laura Ingalls Wilder's daughter, Uh who actually was uh she was active in this time period okay she diagnosed herself with mental illness before anybody had really thought of it 
You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like mm-hmm. she knew she was depressed and that there was a problem, but there was no real outlet for her to be diagnosed, uh-huh. you know, because uh-huh. the stigma was so huge. But I right. mean, people aren't stupid. Yeah. And they can see where things are going, even if they don't have the vocabulary or the support for them. So anyway, mm-hmm. which is all to say, I think like, yes and no, you know, like, I think that these people are pro- like, they're portrayed to be way more progressive than they would be as a whole. Right. But I can't think that at this time when there was so much rapid social change that even if people didn't approve, they didn't extrapolate some of these things, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, no, these that, are my that thoughts. That all makes sense. Yeah, and that's. I mean, because that's what it's. I. I mean, it's always been like any individual thing feels defensible. It's just yeah, that, all taken together, right? That right. they'd all be, you know, you know, I'm okay, you're okay. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, oh God, what's that thing uh, that Marlo Thomas did? Um, ah, it was like that kid songs, yeah, about like the little boy with the doll and yeah. Um, yeah, that thing. Yeah, all thing I can think is the... like everybody poops, but I know that's <laughs> not it. Um, I should think not. <laughs> uh, I feel like I ah. I'm yeah. I know. I'm sorry. I just like there was like a parody of it recently called like "It's Okay to Do Stuff." <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know that was all like really important at the time. Well, I understand. Um. Yeah, they are. I feel like they are all in a very late like, 1970s liberalism, uh, which yeah. makes a lot of sense given Baron Julian's age. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I feel like he stopped paying attention to liberals <laughs> like in 1978. Right. He was like, oh, this is just a bridge too far. <laughs> well, like when was Thatcher elected, you know? like uh, It was like the early 80s. Yeah, because it was... Uh, it, it was right around Reagan. Right. So whenever yeah. that was. Yeah. At any rate, Carson says he thinks that adding Archie's name to the Downton Memorial, which I think is kind of stupid. Like, I get where Mrs. Hughes is coming from, but it's like there's no reason. Right. Like, like the family connection is that his... That's the thing that's the most unbelievable. Oh, right. Is that the family would be like, oh, our cook's coward nephew wants <laughs> to be included. So he thinks it would trivialize the sacrifice of the men who didn't desert, and Mrs. Hughes leaves. Yeah. She is very put out. Yeah. Mostly is packing McGee's things into the car for a trip to London, and then Baxter walks up and tells him about McGee's ultimatum. So Mosley asks what she's going to do, and Baxter says that she might tell her story, but that she wants it buried afterwards, never spoken of again. Yeah, because you totally get to decide that. Under penalty of torture. <laughs> uh, so Mosley says to tell McGee that and make that her condition. Because if she McGee can make conditions, so can Baxter. I'm like, uh, that's uh, not no, that's what the not social how, class no, system. No, not at all. That's mostly you've or been employer employee. Somebody sold you a bill of goods, mostly. <laughs> yeah, it was that hair dye thing? <laughs> uh, McGee comes along, gets in the car. Back in the kitchen, Mrs. Patmore asks Mrs. Hughes if Carson will relent with regard to Archie being on the memorial. The memorial. Mrs. Hughes says no. Just as Carson comes in and sees that Patmore is heard. And then Carson says that the committee would never have allowed it, but he doesn't want her to think she's, that he is unsympathetic. Mrs. Patmore says, <laughs> sympathy butters no parsnips and heads out before she starts crying, which yeah. is, is that a thing? Uh, uh, is that I a think thing that people say? I think it's just that she needed to butter some parsnips at that moment. <laughs> I mean, I think. Daisy asks what's the matter, and Mrs. Hughes just vaguely says that she's had bad news, and then Daisy asks Carson if he would mind if she sits for an examination. Carson says that's for Mrs. Patmore or Mrs. Hughes to decide, since she reports to them. But Daisy wants Carson's opinion. 
I don't know why yeah, since like, he's been a giant turd blossom <laughs> this entire series. He says he's not convinced it's necessary for her and her station in life. Mosley then comes in and says, Officer Bummer is back. And then Mrs. Hughes tells Daisy that she should go as far in life as God and luck allow. And don't go to Carson with these things. And also, don't forget you have a effing farm. <laughs> Question. What's more useless? Daisy's maths or Officer Bummer? <laughs> uh, I'm going to have to say Officer Bummer because uh, I hate him and he's taking forever at this. He really is stupid. Like, what questions do you have that you couldn't well, ask with like, one why, trip? Why do you come, yeah, for five minutes at a time Right. every single time you visit? It's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. So Mary, Lord Grantham, and Isis are walking out front. And apparently Lord Grantham is planning to surprise McGee in London. Mary doesn't think that that is a good idea. I agree. Anytime you're planning to surprise someone and it involves a journey by rail. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or even car. Like, don't do it. Yeah. Like. Or just don't surprise people in general. Yeah, honestly. I don't like. Like, a surprise party can be fun. But, like, individual life surprises are always a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Lord Grantham is confident that's a good idea because, after all, it's not like any of his plans have ever gone horribly wrong. <laughs> the train's going to explode. <laughs> I'm sorry, sir. As soon as you stepped on board, the railroad went bankrupt. <laughs> they say an earl caused it. <laughs> uh, Bates walks up to Lord Grantham, who tells him that his meeting was canceled, so pack him a bag. Down in the Carson cave, uh, Officer Bummer has learned that Green disliked Bates. And Carson is surprised, but says he'll send for Bates to talk about how Mr. Green didn't like him. Right. Fantastic. This is great. I love this storyline so very much. <laughs> in case we, you can't tell, I was being sarcastic. <laughs> we pledged to be more positive this episode. We did pledge to be more positive this episode. It's, and it's been work. But look. Yeah. The only. Look. Look. We can't sign off on murder prison. Yeah. Murder prison is above the law. Yeah. Or below it. <laughs> or whatever. I don't know how you it's would describe below it. below contempt. <gasps> Ooh. <laughs> Good call. Spratt shows Mary into the dower house and asks if she enjoyed her stay in Liverpool. Uh, Mary's eyebrows rise rather remarkably. Uh, and she, But then the dowager walks in and says that Mary found it interesting. Now go get us some tea, Spratt. Yeah. Uh, so cut to them seated, and Mary says that she knows it's shocking to the dowager's generation. And the dowager says, shut your mouth. It is shocking to most people now. Don't just call me old and think you can get away with it. <laughs> uh, she asks if there will be an unwanted epilogue. Which, how could you possibly know a day after? Uh, Although well, maybe uh, the dowager has read Marie Stopes' Married Love herself. Or at least read of it yeah. and knows that such things are, you know, happening nowadays. What with these flappers and telephones yeah, everywhere. Yeah, novels and such. <laughs> yeah. So when Mary says that there won't be, and the dowager starts to say that that will be a nice change, but then corrects herself and is like, oh, I meant a nice kettle of fish. <sighs> I missed that. No, That's I know. Really I missed it the first time through, but I was like, oh, wow. Um, just partly just because I happen to be thinking that same thing this uh -huh. time through, you know, regarding pig baby. <laughs> um, Maripig? <laughs> pig of gold? Pig of gold. <laughs> that poor child. I know. It seems mean to be so mean to a baby who didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> yeah, she really didn't. You know, it's not her fault she keeps being stolen from various families. That's true. God. She's going to be like the good son. <laughs> 
The Dowager asks if there will be a proposal, and Mary says that there already is one. And the Dowager's like, oh, whew. you know, I still don't approve, but that's, you know, definitely changes things. So when are they going to announce? And Mary is like, uh, you know. Little Gilly ain't all it was cracked up to be, <laughs> is all I'm saying. The Dowager says that, you know, if she had been seduced, she would not let grass grow under her feet or his. I forget. His feet. Yeah. But Mary says that she wasn't seduced and asks, couldn't she have gone of her own free will? And the Dowager says, not if she's the daughter of an earl. Which is a pretty solid thing to say. That is. Because that's kind of like what the whole like aristocracy is predicated on. Right. It's predicated on knowing whose baby is whose. Yeah. And also you being property. Right. Spratt comes in with tea, and the Dowager says they have been talking about Mary's conference. And Mary says, I learned a great deal that I never knew before. So I guess it was just all missionary all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, she just... I guess they were only married for like a year? I don't remember how long. I mean, Well, because she was having difficulty conceiving. Oh, yeah. And and then then he was died right when the baby was born. Yeah, so... Yeah. Maybe a couple years. Well, and if she but was I, pregnant for nine months of that, like, for, like, the last, you know, two to three months. Right, right. You can't do a whole lot. But, I mean, when she said she learned a lot that she didn't know, I think she was mainly saying that she learned that Gilly sucks. Yeah. You know, Ugh. sexually and otherwise. Um, yeah, but then Mary and the Dowager trade a series of meaningful looks, both before and after Spratt leaves, that I really enjoyed. I love this scene so much because yes. the Dowager, it doesn't make any sense because my grandmother is in no way sophisticated right. or like witty. Yeah. But like the relationship between Mary and the Dowager reminds me a lot of my relationship with my grandmother. Yeah. Uh, you know, granted, an entire lifetime after this happened. But like when we got engaged, Mm -hmm. I remember specifically my grandmother being like, uh, don't do anything that you aren't ready for. Mm. Meaning don't have kids because Mm -hmm. my grandmother had 12 kids. Yeah. (laughs) And you know, right. Whatever her thoughts as a good practicing Catholic woman in the early part of the aughts. Right. Uh, were she knows that things are better now yeah. in that regard yeah. and that you can definitely take better steps. <laughs> um, and, you know, I mean, I think she had to have known. Well, I don't know if she knew that we, like, had premarital sex. Right. I hope we're not shocking anyone. <laughs> uh, but we did. We everybody. definitely did. We definitely had our share of stays at the Liverpool Grand Hotel. We learned a great deal that we never did before. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think, you know, in her mind, I think, you know, insofar as she had kind of kept up with the sexual revolution, right. uh, having been born in the 20s, yeah. that she conceived that people would start having sex when they were engaged. Like, mm-hmm. that was as far as she could, like, uh-huh, uh-huh. push it. Right. Um, but no, but I mean, she just, you know, she's a smart cookie. Yeah. Even though she is not as aware of everything that has kind of happened in the last 50 years. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I just, I don't know. I really just like seeing things where granddaughters and grandmothers interact because I think it's a very special relationship in most cases. Mm-hmm. Um, in some cases, it's freaking horrible. Yeah. I don't as know. I have learned from other people. <laughs> right. But uh, I was always lucky in that regard. And it's just really cool to see that dynamic play out, especially when you look at Lady Mary, who does not get along with her mother and, mm-hmm. you know, doesn't like that she's American and sort of this black mark right. against Mary. Right. Um, and she, you know, Mary's obviously modeled herself on granny yeah yeah. and that's what she's going for yeah and i think there's an undercurrent in this scene where mary is a bit 
upset that the dowagers found out about this yeah when it's interesting too because i kind of feel like and i don't remember it clearly enough to make a direct comparison but i do feel like that the dowager is less i don't want to say mean exactly but then she was with edith Mm -hmm. that she is more sympathetic to mary than she was to edith even though edith was like i mean she really was going to get married and like no question but i think it's also that mary's been married before oh that's true that could be a factor i don't know yeah well and you know it's the dowager's gone through that thing right well maybe that's what she meant about that's a a nice change well yeah that's what i was that's what i thought she meant i know (laughs) she's like what do we have to steal another round of babies (laughs) anyway great scene we loved it yes in London, McGee says that she has accepted Baxter's condition. So Baxter then describes uh, the situation as essentially the plot of secretary. <laughs> if Mr. Gray had not been a nice person right. underneath and all. Uh, but she got into, you know, a bad idea relationship with a footman named Peter Coyle. And it's like, dude, you're a lady's maid. How are you getting into a relationship with a footman? Nah. But you know what? The bad idea relationship knows no bounds. It, yeah. So you know what, Baxter? I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm I'm there with you. Yeah. It just, you know, it just happens. Yeah. So he talked her into the robbery. He gave his notice. And then on his last day, she stole the jewels. She says he wanted all of them, but she only took some. Right. She gave him the jewels. And then he ran off and uh, failed to show up uh, at the appointed meeting the following <laughs> yeah. day. And then McGee says, oh, and you took the blame because you were ashamed that you had been in this relationship. And Baxter's like, yeah. Yeah. And McGee's like, I understand. (laughs) I feel the same way about Lord Grantham. (laughs) I suppose I shouldn't have told you that. (laughs) No, but Baxter, I love her acting in this scene. Like, it's so good. Yeah. And I feel like I've hated her storyline so much that I have been blind to her considerable acting talent. <laughs> well, I think, I think, and it's again, I don't want to get, spend too much time complaining about, uh, Bates. Uh huh. Brendan? Brendan Coyle. Oh, it Peter is Coyle. Coyle. I thought Brendan I was. Brendan Coyle. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, he and Baxter have both for the last couple of seasons had very one note characterizations. And I think that you can see the different, like she's carried herself much better through this tedious thing. But I don't think you can judge him too harshly because he had really rich storylines in the first, I will even say the first three series Mm -hmm. because murder prison number one wasn't nearly as bad as murder prison number two and murder prison menage a murder. (laughs) But like, you know, we've only known Baxter for two series. No, that's so true. I think I think we've just had less time to get tired of that. Potentially. And we have nothing else that's superior to compare it to. Yeah, well, that's a good point. Officer Bummer asks what Bates did in York. Uh, and he goes through, he says uh, he posted a letter, made inquiries at a shoe shop. What do you <laughs> inquire after? Do you got any shoelaces? <laughs> do you have any shoes? No? I see. <laughs> Well, he does say they were just opening up. Well, that's true. I uh, had coffee, he had a sandwich at some pub, he had a drink at some other pub. Uh, the- Actually, it was the same pub. Right. Er, yeah. There was a total of two pubs and three stops. Yeah. Uh, because he remembers one of the pub's names, but not the other one. Mm-hmm. And the officer bummer is like, oh, that's fine. I have enough. And goes off. It's like, well, maybe let him, like, eh, but, you know, whatever. Anna's outside, and Officer Bummer says, not to worry. It's just routine. Everything seems to be in order. So that's probably all wrapped up now. 
So then in the hall, Anna asks Bates why Green would want to make trouble for him. Bates says it seems as if he was expecting Bates to make trouble first, and so was, like, establishing that sort of... Uh, and then he goes off to clean Lord Grantham's tails. So No, it's so... Again, this is where I need my flow chart, because I can't remember exactly what he thinks that he knows and what he actually knows. Right. Like, what Anna knows that he knows and doesn't know that he knows. Like, it's all very murky. It is. At the National Gallery, Bricker is showing a Della Francesca to McGee, pointing out the different expressions of reverence within this painting, which is interesting in a sort of, like, medieval way. I never really like yeah, medieval like, paintings because yeah. everybody looks so freaking weird. Yeah, like, I can't get into that either, but, you know, clearly, if you're if you're into that kind of thing, yeah, this is go good. Go for it. Yeah. Uh, McGee notes that even the magpie seems to have been struck dumb. And then Bricker says it's a good catch in that it's a very, it is a very minor detail. Right. I doubt right. I would have noticed it, but he right. says that the, uh, you know, basically Della Francesca took a bird that's known for its chatter and then silenced it. Yeah. In this expression of love for God. Right. And, uh, it's really fun to hear them talk about art, man. Yeah. This and it, great. I mean, it, it's very like, I'm like, okay, this, I'm learning about this painting. Yeah. It's really, yeah. Uh, so he says that the Grantham painting might be a study for one of the angels in this painting. Uh, and they both date from the end of his life. And McGee envies Della Francesca's ability to create when death was closing in. Uh, an experience I similarly had when I went to go see the Keith Haring exhibit at the De Young Museum in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And so McGee says she wishes she could do something people would remember 400 years later and they'll probably just forget her before her body's cold, which is really upsetting. Like she says it like in this, she says it in this very jokey tone, but it's very upsetting. Yeah. Yeah. Bricker says he's sure people won't forget her and McGee thanks him for saying that. And, uh, Brooker's eyes are very much not on the painting. <laughs> yeah. Like, he's like standing behind McGee. And it's, so it's, we see her looking at the painting mm-hmm. and him looking at her. Uh, dude is sprung. <laughs> at Pig Farm, Mrs. Pigman gets home and cannot find Edith. So she tells Piglet to wait in the kitchen and runs out to look for her. And she's like super, like, worked up about yeah, it. Yeah, it's baby stealing to the stealing. <laughs> yeah. She does find Edith and Marigold there with Pig Man out by the pig chicken coop. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Tom, don't go into farming. (laughs) Pro tip. I was not planning to. Good, because we don't even have a backyard. (laughs) That's right. We've Uh, got nowhere to keep pigs except the bathtub. That probably wouldn't end well. I don't think so either. I think they'd really like kick through it pretty quickly. <laughs> I think you're. I feel like this came up in some children's book I read once. What keeping a pig in a bathtub? But I might just be thinking of Mr. Popper's penguins. You are frequently thinking of that. <laughs> I am. Anyway, Mrs. Pigman is seriously annoyed, and Edith, insightful woman that she is, gathers from Mrs. Pigman's death stare that it might be time for her to go. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't, however, prevent her from asking if she can look in tomorrow, and Mrs. Pigman is like, uh, not if I kill you first. Right? So Edith heads out, and Marigold says bye, although she, she was, really flubs it this time, yeah. and I think that's the only thing this child can say. <laughs> right. And she was, she was like a few seconds late. Like, Edith was gone, and yeah. then Marigold was like, oh, bye. <laughs> I am so team Mrs. Pigman here. Oh, yeah. And she's like, she's really losing it. And the actress does a great job. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Pigman says that she is being unreasonable. Uh, Mrs. Pigman is like, oh, you know what? I thought Edith was soft on you, but maybe it's the other way around. And Pigman is like, oh, you're soft, soft in the head, and stomps off. 
Uh, they maybe need some couples counseling. I, I think that would but probably help. But you know help. what? Maybe she needs to dump his ass and go find a farmer who's not such a complete bonehead. Yeah. Like, oh my God. Daisy's got a farm. Right. Daisy <laughs> does. Oh my God. I'm so, I'm now suddenly like, hey, Daisy and Mrs. Pigman, just go have like, you know, sisters doing it for themselves, living on that farm. Yeah. Daisy can have her maths. Mrs. Pigman can have all of her piglets and piggigold. <laughs> No, was- but I just, I just don't get it. Like, yeah. because I think maybe not at this point, but I really think Mrs. Pigman would have been sympathetic had yeah. Pigman just been From like, the beginning. "Hey, this is her kid. She's in a tight spot. Like, can right. we help her out?" Because then you also set an appropriate boundary for Mrs. Pigman to, like, yeah. you know, regulate the affection she has for this kid. Right. And she, yeah, to, to, to know that, you know, there's a chance that Edith might steal this baby from us. Right. So, so like, think you about know, that. plan accordingly. Ugh. Poor Mrs. Pigman. Yeah. She really got really, the short end of all I really of this. want her to have a win here. I know, baby. And I'm not sure what the win is. No, I know. Maybe it's just punching the Pigman. <laughs> that farm is huge, though. Yeah. Like, when she was running, I don't quite understand the architecture. Because I think, you know, it's surrounded, like, by this big stone wall. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't clear on how big their house actually is. Right. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, they fit, you know, four piglets in there. So That's true. Yeah. Where were the other piglets? Uh, yeah. Did they Good leave question. them in thirst? <laughs> At the gallery, McGee can't get through to Rosam and her line is busy yeah uh and so she says i should probably get back she's and she says she's not dressed for dinner but bricker says that she'll be the best looking woman in the ritz dining room and mcgee busts out the civil crawley memorial golly so you know things are getting heated (laughs) bricker says that she has an instinct for the paintings yeah mcgee says she probably shouldn't go with him but she'll go and not to stay too late Bricker says that she'll be back before the clock strikes 12, and McGee hopes it will be sooner than that. Yeah. And they agree that they'll cable Rosamond to let her know that she's not coming, because right. McGee's like, it's probably not a big deal, because, like, Rosamond wanted an early night anyway, so it's, like, not... Yeah. It doesn't really matter if she'll get in there, yeah. so... Rosamond's never liked me particularly. Yeah, she's just got that weird black sitting room. <laughs> she's essentially Cruella de Vil. <laughs> In Hughes's parlor, Mary talks with Hughes about this whole thing, says that it may not be over, Bates' alibis, that the alibis Bates provided in York still leave him enough time to have made it to London. Ah, uh, I guess that's true. But Mary says, well, they'll still have to prove it, and Hughes agrees. They both seem as tired of this as we do <laughs> yeah. at this point. Yeah. Particularly being the only two who have every piece of the puzzle. Right. So, McGee and Mr. Bricker are walking through London late at night. Yes. And McGee, uh, tells him that she loves London and it scared her at first because she'd been in a schoolroom a few months before moving there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Bricker asks why Mac L was so eager to marry her off. And McGee says that they, they weren't a big deal in Cincinnati, uh, let alone New York, which is where they had moved after her father came into his textile money. Right. And she specifically says that they were Jewish and their money was new. She says that they were very rich and she was very pretty, which she can admit now that she's an old lady. Yeah. McGee is so cute in this scene. I want to die. Yeah, we're both dying. Oh my God. It's so great. Well, because when has she ever had a scene by herself that wasn't with her shit family? (laughs) (laughs) And so then she talks about being in London where all the other girls knew exactly what to do. They knew how to behave and how to flirt. 
And Bricker says that she was probably prettier than all of them and more original and more real. And Richie does laugh and says she got a lot of names on her dance cards. <laughs> then she apologizes. And mm-hmm. this breaks my heart for talking about herself. Yeah. Because, I mean, if you think about it, you know, Mary and Edith have always been dicks to her. Yeah. The only daughter that really liked her, mm-hmm. you know, the only one who thought she was such a nice person. Yeah. Uh, is dead. Yeah. And her husband, I think, you know, they've, they were in a marriage of convenience, mm-hmm. which did deepen and soften somewhat, but there is still this like element where he doesn't respect her and he doesn't want to hear about her life right before yeah uh you know we heard that when he you know accused her of being american in the last episode right yeah so this is a fantastic scene and both bricker and mcgee are because bricker yeah is obviously smitten by her yes and this really makes me want there's been all this talk about when this series ends doing a prequel about robert and cora's courtship in the gilded age Mm -hmm. And this is literally the first time I have had any interest in that whatsoever. Yeah. Like, if they can find somebody who's as charming in the Cora <laughs> role, and most importantly, if they make the primary focus her story and her family. Right. Because we already know all about Robert and his family. Yeah. yeah. Like, I would, I would be interested in that. Anyway, so she's apologized for talking about herself. Yeah. Bricker says he's very interested in what she has to say, but but she says they better stop because they're nearly back at Rosamond's. Bricker basically begs her if they can just keep walking, and McGee says she's very lightheaded. It's more like her daughters to be out on the town. Yeah. Bricker says he's really enjoyed himself and wonders if they can do it again. And McGee says that she doubts it, but she hears the offer as a compliment, and yeah. it's just so great. It's so great, and it yeah, I mean it is just. Just somebody paying attention to her mm-hmm. and being just super nice, and she just. But oh, she's man. still, you know, too Victorian to entertain it. Yeah. In any other. Yeah. Because you know, if she was a little younger and had been more into the Edwardian affair, having practices, mm-hmm. she might have encouraged this a bit more. Yeah. But, but it, I, I just, you it know. never felt to me, even the first time through, like this was really going to go anywhere no. too far. Well, I mean, she, you know, she knows what her role in life is. Yeah. Despite the fact that he's obviously broken her spirit. Yeah. But I mean, you know, she takes her, I think, you know, her ethics and her morality as uh, the Countess of Grantham very seriously. Mm-hmm. If for no other reason than not to give uh, the Dowager any ammunition against Well, right. Her. Or pretty much the rest of her family. So, McGee walks into uh, Grantham House in a very happy mood, calling for Rosamond, uh, and sort of, you know, apologizing. But then she sees Lord Grantham sitting there, alone on a couch. Uh, and she's, you know, she says she's so surprised to no, see and him. She and she seems very genuinely delighted happy to see to him. Happy to see him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says he'd reserved a table at Claridge's, and McGee apologizes again, asks if they should call them, and he says, no, I already called when I got Bricker's telegram. Uh, she asked after, after Rosamond, he says that she is upstairs, she gave Lord Grantham McGee's dinner, and then went to bed. <clears throat> Conveniently, uh, not requiring that actress to be in this episode. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, you know, she certainly saw which way the wind was blowing, and it had no reason to want to be part of this no. conversation. Uh, so McGee again apologizes if Lord Grantham is still annoyed. And McGee says, 
you know, like, wait a minute, you know, I didn't do anything wrong here. And Lord Grantham says that he disagrees, that he came all this way to London only to find his wife dining with another man. And McGee says, well, he just wanted to discuss the pictures with me. Is that so hard to believe? And he's like, oh, an art expert would want to hear your ideas about the pictures. It is so mean. Yeah. It is one of the meanest things I've ever seen. And like, I've watched Deadwood <laughs> a lot. Yeah. You know? No, it's super just like. It's so condescending and yeah. insulting. Yeah. And they both play the shit out of it. Like, yeah. Again. Yeah. These are just really great scenes. They are. And I mean, Hugh Bonneville is so great in this role. Yeah. Like really, really great. As, yeah. I think we spend a lot of time hating on his character. Right. But like that should in no way diminish how great <laughs> Hugh Bonneville is because he is so angry yeah. and hurt and he's never thought of, you can see that he has never ever thought of McGee as anything other than an extension of himself. Right. And as somebody who should have an internal or external life. Yeah. Well, because then, so after he says that, McGee, like, freezes up and is like, well, I'm going to bed mm-hmm. and goes off. And then Lord Grantham, like, because this again with Hugh Bonneville, like, he, he has another drink and he's just got this, like, still angry but, like, confused look on his no, face. No, because it's like he knows something went wrong, but he can't figure out what she did to make it go wrong. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. He's like, well, it was nothing I did. Right. Yeah. Well, no, he's like, he feels guilty, but he hasn't yet figured out that he has any reason to feel, Mm -hmm. he's like, I feel guilty, but that can't be right. What's going on here? He's like, I'm great. Yeah. Yeah. So that's all going on. Yes. In the library back at Downton, uh, Branson asks Mary if Edith seems distracted to her. And she says, I'm not sure I'd notice (laughs) because Mary is such a bitch. Uh, I really am enjoying the return of Mary the Bitch. Yeah. Honestly, mm-hmm. like, come on. It's great. I mean, obviously I am. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then uh, Mary says that Branson also often seems like he's thinking of something else. And then Branson says it's hard to know what to do when you feel you might hurt people. And Mary's like, yeah, so don't do anything, dipshit. <laughs> don't listen to Cumberbatch. You saw what happened to Dan Stevens. <laughs> Branson asks if she's referring to Gilly. Uh, oh, so she wasn't actually talking about him and what he might do. Wow, great how everybody's just turning the conversation back to themselves. That's yeah, healthy. that it is. Anyway, Mary says that she's not sure because he says it seemed like maybe she had settled on Gilly and she says that she's now unsettled. Yeah. Branson asks what Gilly's done wrong and she says that he hasn't done anything particularly, but they'd never spent time together until recently. And she basically realized how boring it is. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty much what it comes down and to. And Mary says that Gilly's nice, but she thinks she's been clouded by, and then Branson chimes in saying, by what Eleanor Glynn likes to write about in her novels. Wink, wink. Nudge, <laughs> nudge. Yeah. And Mary it. says that she's got over it now, and Branson says he won't ask how she did that. Yeah. But Branson says that he'll back her up with whatever she wants to do about Gilly if she backs him up. And then he asks if she means the homely liberal or moving to America. And he says, either one. But she says, uh, she's not keen on either option. Neither are we. <laughs> right. Branson says, if you love me, you'll support me. And then Mary says, then I suppose I'll have to. Yeah. Which is very sweet. The it relationship sweet. between these two is really fantastic. Yeah. One is just, you know, that they can talk about the fact that she, you know, banged Gilly, mm-hmm. you know, and they talk around it, but well, they're not. They, they have a genuine affection for each other, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And that brings us to our next recurring segment, Fashion Backwards with our own erotic egghead, Kelly. Yes. So... Branson mentions the novels of Eleanor Glynn, and that sounded extremely familiar to me, mm-hmm. and I couldn't quite figure out why. Um, but it turns out that she was essentially the E.L. James 
of post-war Great Britain. Actually, mm-hmm. honestly, Victorian and Edwardian. Yeah. Uh, so we know her because uh, Joanna Lumley plays her in one of our favorite movies, The Cat's Meow. Yes. So she is on uh, William Randolph Hearst's yacht uh, the night that Tom Ince is killed. Right. And it's all very dramatic. And yes. if you haven't seen that movie... Watch it immediately. Yeah, absolutely. Eddie Izzard is in it. Kirsten Dunst is Mary Davies. It's fantastic. Carrie Elwes. Edward Herman. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, Edward Herman. Yeah. May he rest in peace. It's phenomenal. It is. It's a really great movie. So Eleanor Glynn uh, wrote these romantic novels, which sometimes veered into erotica, mm-hmm. basically, and kind of scandalized <laughs> the populace. She also came up with the, uh, you know, when you say... Uh, you know, let's do it as in let's have sex. She invented that. Wow. Uh, that is what she did. <laughs> so, hey, pretty, that's, pretty fantastic. That's impressive. Uh, and so obviously, you know, what she wrote by today's standards, you're like, oh, this is nothing. Mm-hmm. But, uh, for her was just very, uh, scandalous for society but I mean, right. people loved it oh yeah um people love sex yeah honestly i'm not sure that they're any more scandalous than 50 shades of gray actually is yeah probably true um but she was born uh on jersey in the channel islands she was born eleanor sutherland uh in 1864 and she was the younger daughter of a douglas sutherland and uh he was a civil engineer Ooh. which you almost were once i i majored in it for a year related uh to the lords i think it's pronounced duffus but i want to call them doofus <laughs> so he was Let's related to the doofuses through his wife <laughs> eleanor saunders and that family had settled in canada and so uh eleanor's father died shortly after her birth so her mother just took her back to guelph in uh ontario and she had a sister named lucy who grew up actually to be uh lady duff gordon who is the fashion designer lucille who we've covered on this segment in the past um so then when eleanor glenn was eight years old uh she returned to the island of jersey with her family because her mother remarried and they went back so then uh eleanor didn't have a dowry i mean she wasn't part of a particularly aristocratic family they had some connections Mm -hmm. but they you know they would have been the poor relations you hear about so often in literature yeah yeah so she married a guy named clayton lewis glynn who was a wealthy but very cheapo uh barrister but he also owned uh some land in essex and he was descended from uh sir richard carr glynn who was the lord mayor of london back in the 18th century and the marriage was not very good. Yeah. They they were fundamentally incompatible. Although they do ha- do have two daughters together, Margot and Juliet. And Glenn started writing in 1900, starting with just a book based on letters to her mother, which I assume weren't erotic. <laughs> <laughs> I really one, hope they weren't. Yeah, fingers crossed. So, um she then started also having affairs at this point because she was so incompatible with her husband. No. So, uh, one of her books is called Three Weeks. It's one of her more well-known books, but it's about an exotic Balkan queen who seduces a young British aristocrat. And that was apparently inspired by her affair with a 16 years her junior Lord Alistair Innes Kerr, who was brother of the Duke of Roxburgh, and that scandalized Edwardian society. Well, I would Although I so. find it a bit odd. I'm like, I'm not totally sure what about it is so scandalizing. If it's the age difference. Well, I think it's... I mean, isn't it? Well, I guess I, I guess it was probably because I mean, look, we have covered this extensively. You know, well planned out infidelity mm-hmm. once you've produced your heirs, right, was fine. 
Yeah. But I think talking about it probably wasn't. <laughs> That's probably true. It's like, do what you want, but just, you know, don't tell anybody about it. Right. Uh, and then she also had a very long affair with George Nathaniel Curzon, first Marcus Curzon of Kettleston. Oh. Curzon. Do you know who that person is? Well, that's a, I think was a, I don't know if that Curzon was, but there were some famous Curzons. Maybe uh, like uh, Viceroy of India or whatever. Possibly. Yeah. We really did a good job on research. We this. sure did. Um, and she was actually also at the age of 48 painted by Philip de Laszlo. So, uh, you know, that's probably floating around somewhere. <laughs> Uh, despite his spendthrift ways, her husband fell into debt starting around 1908. So Eleanor wrote one novel a year to keep up her standard of living. And then he died in November 1915 after having been ill for a number of years. Mm. So her writing career was very interesting for the time. I mean, she was very popular. In 1919, she signed a contract with William Randolph Hearst to include stories and articles that she wrote. Uh, and she also retained all of the motion picture rights Ooh. for everything that she wrote, whether it was her novels or just these articles she was writing. She wrote for Cosmopolitan oh. in its earliest days. And she actually uh, then kind of spent a lot of time in Hollywood to write screenplays. And she also wrote a... I don't know. It's not clear to me if it's an article or if it's a book, but uh, the Eleanor Glynn system of writing gave insights uh, for Hollywood studios and magazine editors. So she was a bit of a trendsetter mm-hmm. in writing in women's spaces and also, I mean, in the very, very early years of film. Yeah. Well, I like to imagine, too, that she invented the sex quiz. It would have been the it quiz. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and actually, so she wrote a novel in 1927 called It. And she says, to have it, the fortunate possessor must have that strange magnetism which attracts both sexes. In the animal world, it demonstrates in tigers and cats, both animals being fascinating and mysterious and quite unbiddable. (laughs) And then also in the movie, it says that it is the self-confidence and indifference as to whether you are pleasing or not, which is something for everyone to keep in mind. I think it's very astute. Yeah. You know, because I think people are still kind of talking about that. But it, this is very basic. I think yeah. we muddy it up a lot now yeah. in terms of what it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, the screenplay for it was very popular and really kind of boosted her star. Mm-hmm. But she isn't actually listed as a screenwriter, which is weird. She's just like a co-producer, basically, was the highest hmm. credit they gave her on that. Although she did make a cameo in the in the movie itself. Oh, oh that's nice. So she moved to Hollywood permanently and stayed there for quite a while. And she actually helped uh, Gloria Swanson transition from being an ingenue to uh, an elegant leading woman. And uh, she also helped launch the careers of Rudolph Valentino and Clara Bow, your very favorite person. And she's the it girl. So you can see, I don't know why I never, like I have never in my life connected it girl with it like <laughs> yeah, doing, yeah, right, with right. the verb doing it yeah yeah so at some point in the the later 20s uh she created a company called eleanor glenn limited mm-hmm. uh and so she basically did that to sort of uh corral all of her copyrights and things like that into this one holding company and then in 1929 because of the taxes on her uh-huh. she moved back to great britain and she formed her own production company and uh wanted to produce her own films oh. and i want to see this really badly out of her own pocket she created a film called knowing men this is in 1929 and it was a feminist view on men as sexual harassers wow yeah and it was a disaster <laughs> and uh a screenwriter maybe a screenwriter for not old chaps yeah <laughs> 
So the screenwriter Edward Noblock sued her so that it couldn't be released. So mm. I'm very curious if any existing prints of the film survive. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then she tried to produce another film in 1929 that also was unsuccessful and never released. So no. she basically was like, all right, fuck it. Yeah. I'm done trying to do this. I'm just going to keep writing novels. Yeah. And she wrote in her lifetime and released like 42 separate books. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was extremely prolific. And she was huge in popular culture. Yeah. And so, I mean, I'm sure I've heard of her in other capacities than the cat's meow. Mm-hmm. But just really an interesting life. And she really made the best out of a bad marriage. Yeah. Uh, both of her daughters wound up marrying into the aristocracy mm-hmm. and becoming, you know, titled ladies. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, just really a fascinating character. And I really also want to, to read some of her books uh-huh. just to kind of see what erotica was like yeah. in those days and, yeah. and how that all functions so yeah. yeah really fascinating and uh i guess that's how tom gets his jollies <laughs> meaning branson yes not you just just to be clear i've never read any eleanor glenn yet Shucks. well now that i know when we finally do get counseling they'll be like well what's going on he won't stop reading these eleanor glenn novels <laughs> uh yes i've learned about this from my grandfather uh, the original couples counselor the it counselor. <laughs> <laughs> Isabel and the dowager are walking through the churchyard, and Isabel invites the dowager to the tea that Rose is having for her Russian refugees. Uh, the dowager says that she's That's not- what they named the Russian tea room after in New York. <laughs> this very tea. Mm-hmm. The dowager says she's not sure she'll have the energy, but Isabel says she has to go because she's the only one who's been to Russia. Uh, she asks if she met anybody there and if she's kept up with any of them. The dowager countess says no, and so she really doesn't want to go because an unlucky friend is tiresome enough. An unlucky acquaintance is intolerable. Which, you know, actually, I would really not want to meet somebody that I barely knew who was a refugee. It would be so awkward. Right? And be like, ugh. Yeah. Like, what do we, ugh. <laughs> uh. You remember that time we... Oh, that makes you sad? Okay, bye! (laughs) I got a thing. (laughs) And Isabel says, you're all heart. I'm loving them so much in this series. They're great. They are. McGee and Lord Grantham pull up to the front door, uh, having returned from London, on what must have been a very awkward train journey. (laughs) One would think. Rose is setting up for the tea, and McGee heads right upstairs. I'm assuming they haven't spoken. I think that is probably Uh, true. If I were McGee, I would have made damn sure I had a different compartment than that dick. No? That spotted dick. (laughs) Uh, So Lord Grantham uh, says he asked... uh, who does he say? Pattinson? I think Pattinson, yeah. Yeah, he asked Pattinson to pull their Russian things out. And I'm like, who the fuck is that? You mean that ghost? <laughs> At any rate, yeah, what is this, Harry Potter now? <laughs> so Rose says, yes, all the Russian things have been pulled out. Lord Grantham says that they uh, should do things properly. He asks Mrs. Patmore if she agrees. <laughs> right. Mrs. Patmore agrees because he signs her paycheck. <laughs> yeah. Lord Grantham uh, has noticed that there's something a bit off about Miss Mrs. Patmore, which is weird because right. he never sees her. Yeah. And Carson says it's nothing for him to worry about, but Lord Grantham presses and Carson won't tell. Right. Brittany Murphy style. <laughs> yeah, but also Lord Grantham, like, why would you not accept that it's nothing for you to worry about? Also, Lord Grantham, how can you tell when your cook is upset and not when your wife is upset? Well... Good question. Rose goes off to ask uh, for more lemon downstairs. And then Gilly walks in. Yeah. And Mary's like, oh, I'm so glad you're 
here, obviously. Not annoyed with you at all. Uh, but he like goes in to kiss her cheek and we can see her face and Branson. Branson is just like, whoa. It's yeah. great. So again, moral of the story, don't surprise people. Don't ever surprise anyone. Yeah. Just don't do it. Yeah. Just say no to surprises. <laughs> so Mary explains the tea set up to Gilly with the Russian refugees. And I can only think that Gilly would have to think, uh, oh, man, I sure picked a bad day yep. to show up unexpectedly. Um, and then Isabel and the Dowager Countess arrive uh, as Gilly, ex- Gilly explains why he's being so rude and just stopping in. Yeah. And then the Dowager Countess greets Gilly, and Mary's like, hey, Dowager Countess. <laughs> and then Mary's like, hey, Granny, come over here. I need to show you something. <laughs> uh, and then Isabel's chatting with Gilly, who awkwardly thanks her for being so kind to him, seeing as he's boning her dead son's <laughs> widow. Yeah. Uh, and he thanks her for being so kind, and Isabel's like, I am not kind to you at all. <laughs> but I do appreciate that, because honestly, I really feel like Isabel would be more depressed and I think we dealt with it a bit, but like... We did a bit. I mean, and she's not one to wallow. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it does have to be really difficult for her yeah. seeing her bitchy, you know, <laughs> ex-daughter-in-law, right. you know, entertaining all the young bucks of the county who are not that young anymore. True. And Mary's no spring chicken, so... <laughs> In the kitchen, everybody's running around trying to get all these tea things set up. When the homely liberal shows up for Daisy's math lessons, but she says that she's too busy, and Rose, who is there dealing with the lemons, uh, asks or explains to the homely liberal what the tea is all about, and the homely liberal is like real sneery, like, mm-hmm. "Oh, so a bunch of stupid aristocrats are having stupid tea, huh?" Yeah. And Rose is like, "Ah, uh, would you like to stay for it?" Also, Daisy, you really should have called the homely liberal. Yeah. Like, that's extremely rude. That uh, That is. Amongst the, fellow tradespersons. She has a 24-hour cancellation policy. Yeah. Uh, off in a side room, Mary is talking to the Dowager Countess, and she says that she values her advice, and the Dowager says that by, by saying that, Mary is going to ignore her advice. <laughs> and Mary says that she won't be hurried into anything. Then the dowager asks why she went to bed with Gilly if she wasn't certain about getting married to him. Yeah. And she says in her day, a lady was not capable of feeling physical attraction until she'd been instructed to. Yeah. Which is a great and foolish premise. (laughs) Mary does not believe her. And then the dowager countess says that she must take control of her feelings because their family is descended from a long line of Jedi Knights. In McGee's room, McGee tells Baxter that she still thinks she should report Coyle to the police, but she says she won't, but Baxter can stay anyway, so hooray or whatever. Yeah, great. We are nowhere any different than we were three episodes ago when right. this stupid plot arc started. Yeah, I mean, and I'm, you know what? If this had been a single episode plot arc, it wouldn't have been the greatest, but it would have been fine. But what I do like about this scene is how sad McGee is. Yeah. She is so sad because she had such a great night, and then Lord Grantham had to poop all over her cornflakes. Yeah. Uh, downstairs, Lord Grantham asks if McGee has seen what they've pulled out for the Ruskies. <laughs> and McGee says they both know he places no value on her opinions. So Lord Grantham has at least figured out that he fucked up because he says he was cross and isn't he allowed to have his own opinions? Right. And McGee says that he's not allowed, or no, isn't he allowed to be angry that a man like was with her or something? Something like that. Like that. But McGee says he's not allowed to be unjust. And then excuses herself to go hang out with the Russians. And once you meet the Russians, you'll be like, man, she wants to hang out with these people and not her husband. <laughs> yeah. Burn! 
Anna comes in and tells Edith that Pigman's downstairs and asking for her. And I'm like, listen, I don't care how much things have changed since the war. There's an awful lot of upstairs, downstairs, cross-conversation happening that I don't approve of. Yeah. In the backyard, Edith asks Pigman, what's up? Uh, he says, there's nothing wrong with Marigold, but that Mrs. Pigman has had enough of Edith. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that Edith's a got... A little Edith goes a long way. Yeah, yeah. And Edith needs to stay away for a while. Uh, and Edith is sad. Again, big surprise. Uh, and the servants all see her walking through and crying. Get your shit together, Edith. Yeah. Like, it's already, there's already no reason that this pig man should have come and asked for you. Yeah. So, and then, like. Uh, Can he not send a letter? Right. Oh my god. Anyway. You're always getting letters and crying. They'll be surprised. <laughs> And it'll be the upstairs people who don't give a shit. <laughs> right. Like, save some face, Edith. Like, you have so little left. Oh, was Edith crying? I find it so hard to tell. <laughs> upstairs, uh, the Russians. One of whom is the guy who played Boris in the movie Snatch. Great. I, I have excited. seen the first and third thirds of that movie. <laughs> so I'm assuming he was in that middle third that I don't recall. Uh, but they're all mingling. And then one who we will refer to as uh, Spectacolinov <laughs> on account of his cartoonish glasses yeah. and demeanor. Yeah, I was going to say, there's plenty of cartoonishness about this guy. Yeah, so he's talking to the homely liberal, much to Lord Grantham's display. Uh, and then uh, the homely liberal says that she is at the tea under false pretenses. And I'm like, well, why did you go? Right. Nobody really wants you there. Yeah, it was. you know what you could have said to Rose? No. Yeah. It would have been real simple. So Branson's like, oh, no, you're very welcome. Uh, as Lord Grantham asks McGee, what is she doing here? <laughs> and then McGee says Rose asked her and she says that he shouldn't let the homely liberal irritate her. But right. Yeah. But then immediately after the homely liberal manages to irritate uh, Spectacolinov by saying that the Tsar was misguided in his policies, which honestly seems hard. Yeah. To, like the dude was murdered. Right. Like, People we, don't do that when you have great <laughs> policies. Yeah. We don't like the homely liberal, but this definitely she definitely seems to have not really been in the wrong. Um, yeah. This one. But look, these people are not going to be super rational about this. Well, obviously. You know? so the Russian guy demands that they be returned to York immediately. <laughs> <laughs> McGee steps in because she's a great hostess. Yes, she Lord is. Lord Grantham. Mm -hmm. uh, and she asks him to stay and see the mementos they have from the wedding in 1874, which we already heard about. Yeah. And then the guy is super psyched to see Romanov relics, relics which is creepy. Yeah. And says the words Grand Duchess Maria make him weep. Uh, so Rose takes him off to go see that, yeah. uh, which is weird. Yeah. And then Lord Grantham asks Branson to keep that woman under control. Yeah. And I'm like, why doesn't she just leave, man? I know. Like, nobody likes you. Like, you know, you've already made the Russians mad. Yeah. Which, uh, so, you know, never get involved in a land war in Asia. <laughs> pat yourself on the back. You've done your job and, you know, find another maid to teach. <laughs> in the library, the Russians are all crying as they look at the relics. Lord Grantham feels guilty. He thought they would enjoy themselves, but the Dowager says that they are enjoying them. They're just Russian. <laughs> Rose asks why they went to the wedding, and the Dowager says that the Earl at the time was in Prince Alfred's household, and she reminisces about how beautiful everything was, all the balls and the receptions and the sleigh rides. Uh, and then Spectacolnikov calls the Dowager over to look at a fan, and she is excited to see it. She says it was given to her rather than the Earl. Lord Grantham asks if it was the Tsar that gave it to her. She says no. Uh, she says they were at a ball that was very hot, icicles outside, but she was so hot and she was wearing this blue dress. And then Boris leans in and says, and then I gave you this fan. 
You hid it in your reticule. In case, My reticule? <laughs> in case Lord Grantham could be angry. And everybody's like, whoa. whoa. They get Joey Lawrence on it. <laughs> yeah. The Dowager is stunned. Uh, and Boris says he could not resist the temptation to come when he heard that she would be there. Uh, so and everybody continue Like, they're like slack-jawed. They're <laughs> yeah. like, what? Yeah. Uh, so the Dowager recovers herself, uh, introduces Lord Grantham to Prince Kuragin. He says that he is flattered to be remembered by her. The Dowager asks, so uh, how is the princess? Your wife, dude. <laughs> and with this like very awkward laugh. Uh, and he says that he does not know. Awkward. Yeah. Rose is like, let's have more tea. It's the one thing England and Russia can agree on. <laughs> Mary marvels to Gilly at the events they She's have like, just Granny seen. She's like, Granny has a pause. <laughs> yeah. And she says that it's a shame that Lord Grantham and Rosamond were already born at the time, else they could spin all sorts of exciting tales. Which, honestly, I don't think it's that, like, no, good, man. You guys have enough problems. <laughs> yeah. Well, you don't need one of you to be a Russian prince. I mean, God knows somebody might show up and assassinate him. Right. Downstairs, uh, Anna is asking Hughes how it's going upstairs, and Mrs. Hughes says there's a lot of emotion being vented, but then again, they are foreigners. <laughs> and it's just, uh. It's sort of a random scene, but I almost kinda, I just kinda liked it, you well, know. Well, we didn't have to deal with the ongoing fallout <laughs> of Anna's sexual trauma in this scene. Well, so I was pleased with that. That is a plus. Out front, the Dowager tells Mary not to give her knowing looks. Because she was traveling with Mary's grandfather. and It was all perfectly respectable. That's right. Mary says, nonetheless, she now knows that the Dowager understands her predicament far better than oh, she yeah. let on. You don't give a lady a fan if you don't want to see her fan. <laughs> if you get my meaning. I do. Her fanny? <laughs> yes. Our British and uh, Australian and New Zealander cousins will think that's very funny. Well, I hope so. I hope so, too. <laughs> we cater to the entire Anglophone world. <laughs> The Dowager then gets in the car with Isabel, who asks if she's made plans to see her admirer again. <laughs> boom. boom! The very rare Isabel boom. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the Dowager has no response to that, and so they drive off, and Prince Karagan follows the Dowager Countess with his piercing gaze. End of scene. Yeah. End of episode. Well, that's true. It's pretty great. Yeah, this we is really, really liked it. There's a lot of cool things getting set in motion here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're excited that Mary seems to not be into Gilly. Yeah. we're not into Gilly. Right. Team he's, Blake. Yeah, he's less boring. Yeah, and he knows about pigs. <laughs> it's true, which is important. As Mary owns many of them. Indeed. So before we get into the Abbey Awards, I forgot to mention something. Okay. Back when we awarded Cousin of the Week. Uh, many, many, many people, like to the point that I completely lost count, <laughs> uh, wrote or tweeted or added on Facebook that uh, the sitcom I remembered from my yes. childhood in the 1980s uh, with the girl with the amazing the alien power. ability. Yeah, the yeah. space power. It's called Out of This World, and her father, although never seen on screen, was played by Burt Reynolds. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. So he's voiced by Burt Reynolds. So yeah. thank you, everybody, for letting me know. I am probably going to lose some time <laughs> uh, delving into that on YouTube, if possible. But yeah, uh, yeah I really... like The response was very swift. Yes. So yeah. we'll definitely uh, ask you guys more questions <laughs> in the future. Yeah. Which brings us to the Abbey Awards. Hooray! First up, we have Worst Decision, which goes to... Lord Grantham. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, it was a two-part decision. One, having a surprise trip in the first place. Two, picking the worst possible way to express his displeasure. Exactly. Yeah. Next, we have Best Evasion, and that will go to... 
Anna yes. for uh, successfully hiding Mary's shame from her husband. Yes. So uh, good for you, Anna. It seems to be the only thing you can manage to evade in this series. <laughs> That's true. It was actually a tough decision this week. There mm-hmm. was very little evading. Yeah, people were really direct. Yeah. Which is very unlike this show, but I appreciated it. It wrapped up some things. It got some other things moving. Yeah. So uh, come on, Neem. More <laughs> like this. That's right. Next, we have Worst Overbite, which goes to... Spectacolnikov. That was an easy decision Oh, this man. Time. That dude was so far up the Romanov's ass. Yeah. Like, I couldn't even believe it. Yeah, it and was I've shocking. And I've seen the animated film Anastasia. <laughs> so, like, you have to get up pretty early in the morning to impress me Romanov-wise. Well, right. Uh, that brings us to the Gibson Girl Award, which this week we will go with... Edith. Uh, this was a very difficult choice as well because a lot of people looked really great. Yeah. Um, I gave it to, like, and Edith didn't even have that much to do, but she looked great in every scene. And the mm-hmm. problem with everybody else, I almost even gave it to Mrs. Hughes. Like, Mrs. Hughes <laughs> yeah. has some really nice new dresses that she's wearing below stairs. Yeah, yeah. But so in the, the first sort of dinner scene, Edith is wearing, like, this, uh, really nice purple outfit. She's rocking the headscarves again, mm-hmm. which is really our favorite look for her. Yeah, yeah. And she's got a really, uh, nice little sweater set on, uh, down at Pig Farm when Mrs. Pigman is like, get out of my house! <laughs> uh, <laughs> Right. Yeah. So she just, she looks great and she's uh, really nailing it wardrobe wise, even as she is losing her grip everywhere else. Yes. Next up, we have the Fashion Backwards Award for Backwards Fashion, aka the Backy, which goes to McGee. And this was hard. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so this was just really hard fashion wise everywhere because. Mary's making a lot of dumb choices fashion-wise. Right. Like she's wearing a lot of things that seem like she got off the rack at Forever 21, like when the, <laughs> you know, the buyer thought they'd be all nostalgic and then they're like, "Oh, this is going on the 70% off rack immediately." Yeah. Um Mary's hats have been looking really great though. Yeah. So I'll say that. But it's kind of down to her and McGee for like not looking good. Right. But McGee won it based solely on the seafoam green dress she wears in the first drawing room scene. Right. Which mm-hmm. is heinous. Number one, I'm pretty sure no one ever should wear seafoam green. Right. It is not a good color. It's just, yeah, it's not good for any purpose. No, and it's accessorized with black. Yeah. Her gloves are black. Her beads are black. She should have punched Baxter when she laid that outfit out. Yeah, like that's what you need to fire Baxter over. No, I mean, the gloves in particular were just like shockingly bad. Uh, But I will say, too, she had a great hat on in her scenes with Bricker. Mm. It had a really interesting sort of like oblong oval brim, and I was a huge fan of that. Yeah. No, both both McGee and Mary this week had like both good like highs and lows yeah fashion well, and, wise. and good from the chin up yeah but yeah. everything else yeah mm, not good next up the always popular cutest baby award goes to sibby yay we thought about giving it to george for finally changing it up sartorially right uh but sibby's just so effing cute she just stepped up her game oh she's yeah just, she's killing these other two like, like oh you're ditching the giving... sailor suit yeah well it's time to be extra cute like these other two better start bringing it if they want to be considered yeah it's just all we're saying <laughs> that's that's true and then finally the maggie smith scale of maggie smith's right I went back and forth about this. We had a little bit, bit of a debate, but we, we came down on three Maggie Smiths this week. We were thinking about two. Yeah. And it's it's odd because, you know, we like a, like the stuff that she's involved in. Well, and especially now with this climactic reveal. But 
she was sort of a little bit off at times. Well, she's off her game. Yeah. She's, she's a bit off balance and yeah. people aren't deferring to her. Yeah, that's true. But she like handled that really well even too. Yeah. And she played it so good with Spratt. Yeah. When he was trying to be like, your daughter's a whore, or your granddaughter's a whore. <laughs> she was like, the hell she is. Exactly. Go get me some tea, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, she's at a solid three. Yeah, yeah. Like, I feel like we're building this. I kind of like it when she's not really like super boomy. Like, yeah, yeah. In the early parts and she can really start nailing it in the later parts of the series. Right. So hopefully that's what is in our future. So. Possibly. Although, I mean, she seems to be setting up for, you know, more direct involvement and less, you know, Waldorf and Statler Yeah, situations. that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so we'll uh, see what happens in the next episode. Yes, we will. And until next time, up up yours yours downstairs, downstairs, luncheon out. Mm